making your way out of the feeling is quite literally the most useless thing to do. So I'd love to just speak about that, how thinking is like the last resort we should go to in these, in these moments of anxiety. Welcome to the New Age Sage podcast, where you come to free your mind from all the things that keep you in suffering. Wherever you are watching or listening to this on, please subscribe, like, or leave a review. I would greatly appreciate it. Today's guest is Dr. Judson Brewer. Dr. Judd was my professor at Brown University where he taught me how to measure mindfulness through neuroscience. A New York Times bestselling author of the book Unwinding Anxiety. His TED talk, A Simple Way to Break a Bad Habit, has been viewed over 11 million times. He is the Director of Research and Innovation at Brown University's Mindfulness Center, where he also serves as an Associate Professor in Behavioral and Social Sciences at the School of Public Health and Psychiatry at the School of Medicine at Brown University. He is the Executive Medical Director of Behavioral Health at ShareCare, the digital health company helping people manage all their health in one place. Also, he is a research affiliate at MIT. That's quite a resume. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. You will learn a lot about anxiety and what to do when you're encountering it. I hope you love it. I love you all. Uh, where I wanted to start is I notice in myself and people this mass resistance to feeling the sensation of anxiety. We go straight to the head. We want to think our way out of it. We just don't want to feel it. We want to do anything but feel. I'd love for you to speak as to uh, why we can't feel, why we hate feeling it at all costs. This has an evolutionary origin where we've learned and we're not the only creatures that do this, where if something's unpleasant, uh, we need to make it go away. And that's that's a survival mechanism. So, you know, uh, from everything from instincts, where if we you know, touch a hot stove, we automatically pull our hands away. That's a reflex. We don't even notice until afterwards. Like, wow, that was hot. Um, but that actually translates into avoiding uh, emotional pain as well. So physical pain, physical pain and emotional pain have a huge amount of overlap in the brain. And so that same mechanism gets co-opted where our brain says, oh, that's unpleasant. Make it go away. It's called negative reinforcement. And Eric Kendall, actually a neuroscientist, uh, got the Nobel Prize back in the year 2000, showing that this is this type of mechanism, both positive and negative reinforcement, are evolutionarily conserved all the way back to the sea slug. You know, positive reinforcements, just the the you know, if something's pleasant, we learn to want to make that continue. You know, which goes back to you know, if we eat some food. Our stomach senses dopamine signal to our brain that says, hey, you know, remember what you ate and where you found it so that we can get that nutrient. The negative reinforcement side of things is, you know, if you see danger and you run away, you learn to avoid that danger. And anxiety can be felt as something pretty unpleasant. And so we get in the habit of trying to avoid it. We distract ourselves, we stress eat, we do all sorts of things to try to you know, numb ourselves from that feeling of anxiety. In your book, which is a, the point that was most amazing to me was that you actually can't think your way out of it, that thinking your way out of the feeling is quite literally the most useless thing to do. So I'd love to just speak about that, how thinking is like the last resort we should go to in these, in these moments of anxiety. Yeah. 
in modern society, and this has been happening for you know, probably since the age of enlightenment, we've strongly preferenced our thinking rational mind uh, to our uh, feeling bodies. You know, there's even on the Parthenon, there's a relief, um, you know, carved into it from hundreds of years ago where, you know, there's this rider on a horse and the horse signifies our passions and the rider signifies our, our reasoning mind. And, you know, which one's stronger? You know, the horse, the horse is going to buck the rider anytime, which doesn't stop us from trying to, you know, rely on our willpower, beat ourselves up when, you know, when we feel like we, we don't have enough of it. Unfortunately, <laughs> that's not how our brains work. So this trying to think our way out of anxiety is something that we learn to do societally. You know, everybody says, oh, just stop worrying, you know, stop, stop being stressed, relax, whatever. But that's not really how our brains work. It's really about the, the feeling body being much stronger than the thinking brain. So we we really look for solutions in the wrong places. How can we go about switching from uh, thinking to feeling? What's the, the best way to go about that? Because as you said, everyone just loves thinking the way out of it, especially in this, in this rational world where rationality is celebrated so much. Even you read most self-help books, it's just like use logic, use willpower, use all these things. So how can we actually stop listening to that nonsense and start going into the body and feeling it through? Well, here we can tap into the power of our brains as well. And the way that works is that our brains will learn to do things based on how rewarding they are. So going back to how unpleasant anxiety is, you know, if something's unpleasant, we're going to stop doing it. And here we can bring some awareness, bring some curiosity in and kind of map out, you know, what our habit loops are around trying to force ourselves to change, whether it's trying to force ourselves out of anxiety or any other unhealthy habit, we can just map it out. You know, what habit am I stuck in? Am I stuck in a willpower of trying to, you know, stop eating that extra piece of cake or trying to stop worrying or whatever? Once we see that we're in that, then we can ask a simple question. What am I getting from this? So that we can help our brains very, very clearly see how unrewarding it is. So with willpower, you know, it inevitably fails. <laughs> we can ask ourselves, well, what did I get last time I tried to force myself to not worry? And we've actually probably built up quite a bit of a database that gives us all the evidence that we need to see, well, it didn't work the last hundred times. So is it really worth trying that again? And that's where we, I think of this as becoming disenchanted with these old habits. And I say that as a starting point, because until we're until we're convinced, you know, from a feeling perspective, and then we our brain catches up and says, oh, yeah, that didn't work. It's going to be hard to change any old habit. So that's the first step is just asking ourselves, what did I get from this before? And if we do it again, we can pay careful attention and ask, what am I getting from this now? That disenchants us up. That, oh, go ahead. That, that disenchantment is, is so powerful. When people ask me, because I'm, I'm very disciplined, you know, I, I get an ice bath every morning, I eat like a crazy man, uh, I'm militant about everything, and people ask me, how do you do it? It's like, I think about and feel how I feel like not doing it, uh, how I feel, you know, 
eating the, the crappy food, not working out, just that feeling of, of feeling, you know, tired, grouchy, grumpy. It just feels my body so much less rewarding than the benefits I get from maybe doing things I don't I don't want to do. That I, I did it intuitively, but that's been the most powerful vehicle in my personal change. So it's, it's great to hear that that's actually the, the way that, that our, our bodies and brains should go about creating a change in habits. Yeah. yeah. And you're highlighting not just the disenchantment piece, but, you know, giving our brains something better to do. So our brains are always looking for what I think of as a as a bigger, better offer, the BBO. And so if we see that you know eating crappy food doesn't feel good and we've become disenchanted with that. Our brain is going to say, well, give me something better. We can start exploring using that as an example. What's it feel like to eat clean, to eat healthy food? Well, you tell me, I can tell you from my own experience, feels much better. And so if I can just remember those two things, what was it like the last time I ate crappy food versus the last time I ate healthy food, then my brain can make that decision for me, not from a rational, I should eat healthy food perspective, but from a feeling perspective, we feel into our body and ask, what was that like last time? And that wisdom, it becomes a no brainer. Our body says, well, of course, it feels better. And the more we do that, the more we get into that healthy habit, the more that's going to solidify those behaviors as bigger, better offers. And it'll be easier and easier to the point where our brain says, why would I not do that? I'll give you a, a concrete example from my own life. I used to be addicted to eating gummy worms. You know, the, these, uh, yeah, I'm sure everybody's had some form of a gummy worm, gummy bear, gummy animal, gummy Delicious. thing. Yeah. Yeah. They, they kind of look like fishing lures to me. These, you know, they have these strange colors and they have this sickly sweet taste. And, you know, when I really started paying attention when I, ate, cause I would have to eat the whole bag, you know, just get rid of it. Um, you know, cause everyone would make me want the next one, you know, they're designed to be addictive. And I started paying attention first to what I felt like afterwards, which wasn't, you know, get this gut bomb and then not sleep well. And then, you know, get these urges to eat more the next day. So I basically couldn't have them in my apartment. And then I started really paying attention as I was eating them. And I realized, wow, these actually don't taste that great. You know, they make me want more, which is, is that feeling of craving in itself doesn't feel great. So then I started comparing them to eating blueberries. And I have to say for me, blueberries are the bomb you know they they're delicious they don't make me crave more and i don't overindulge on blueberries so now we can have gummy worms in the house because i'm just completely not interested i just remember what's it like when i eat them Ugh, they don't taste that great these petroleum product type things and then i i my natural go-to is is things like blueberries the similar process for, for me, what I'm curious about is I notice in habits, uh, when we enter a low state of, of being a depressive or low energy, when we're, not, when we're at our most vulnerable worst state, we often crawl back to that, to the gummy worms or, or things. I was curious, what do you do in, in those moments? Let's say, for example, I think one thing that most, most men struggle with is porn addiction. And they often, you know, always relapse and, and go back for those people let's say they've been off it for a month and they have a, a, a lonely night they're sad they're tired they're angry in those moments what's the best thing to do when you're the most vulnerable to make sure you don't go back to that to that habit 
Yeah. The first thing I would say is not to try to force ourselves, you know, because that that force, it just gets us in the habit of, you know, trying to force things and then beating ourselves up for, you know, our willpower failure. So here I would say the first thing that somebody can do is just recall the last time they they went back to it, let's say relapsed. Uh, the And they can just, you know, how how rewarding was this last time? Right. And they can they can I think of this as building their drawing from their disenchantment data bank. You know, if so, if they've built up all that interest in terms of disenchantment where, wow, this just really isn't helpful for me, then they can draw on that and they draw a little interest on that and say, well, what did I get from this last time? How did it really feel afterwards? And if they haven't built up that disenchantment, then and they just, you know, then I would say just pay attention as they as they go through the process. It's like you know, is this objectification of, of people, you know, um, watching porn, you know, all the things that, that paying attention to everything, uh, not just the pleasurable elements of it. And then also how much, you know, what, what happens afterwards. So how long the, um, the boredom qualities last, and then all the stuff that comes afterwards, the, the shame, the guilt, et cetera. Then they can compare that to, you know, they, they can build up their database more in those moments to really, you know, see, wow, how rewarding was that? And then they can compare that to more wholesome uh, sexual activity. Yeah, that's a, a perfect way of, of doing it. And you're talking about much more somatic experience, less uh, intellectual. And on that note, I think it's popular for, for men now. There's this whole alpha male movement of, of men self-shaming or anyone self-shaming where it's like the way to create change, you know, like shaming yourself to go into the gym, shaming yourself to losing weight. It's the most popular vehicle for uh, self, self-help, and people think it's effective. I was curious to see, um, I know you probably believe it's, it's ineffective, but I'd love for you to speak onto that, because it's such a popular thing. We all, we, we all love to do it, and so yeah, please. Uh... Yeah, well, I'll just say, you know, Tide Pod challenges were also popular, and I wouldn't recommend those, you know, so... There are a lot of things that are popular, especially on the internet, that that are just seem ridiculous. Uh, and I would say shaming ourselves is another one of those societally accepted and acceptable and almost, you know, like heroic, like, oh, yeah, just shame yourself to do this. You know, from a neuroscientific standpoint, our brains are not not that excited to to get in those habits. It just doesn't feel good to shame ourselves and the whole theoretically, the whole point of shaming ourselves to do something is because it feels bad enough, we're going to do the thing that doesn't feel bad. It's like hitting ourselves with a stick to do something. Well, here I would say carrots are much more uh, you know, effective than sticks are, you know, and whether in the neuroscience shows this all the time. The idea here is that if we can find something that's actually rewarding, that will draw us to the gym, then that's going to be more effective long-term because carrots feel better than beating ourselves up. So here, I think you even described this from your own experience is we can remember what's it like the last time I worked out, you know, feels pretty darn good. Is that going to naturally draw me to the gym in a more consistent and effective manner than shaming myself, you know, because it we shame ourselves and it doesn't work, then there's even more shame piled on shame. Yep, and hearing you talk about this, and I also picked it up in the in the book, which is an amazing book, by the way, is you have this kind of p- playfulness to your awareness, 
that when, when you catch yourself doing something that doesn't serve you as well or you're changing a habit, what I see you recommend and talk about is a playful awareness, like a, a loving, kind playfulness to your own habit changes, which is a very unique way of going about it. I think none of us do because we're all stuck in that shaming and being mean to ourselves. So what's, why is it effective? Why is being playful with yourself around helping yourself such an effective way to create change? Well, here we can just compare. What does it feel like to be playful? What's it feel like to be curious as compared to, you know, shame or force or anything like that? You know, it's, it's a no-brainer for our brains. It just feels better to be playful. It feels better to be curious. Curiosity naturally draws us in. Oh, instead of that, oh no, that comes with like, I've got to do this or like, I need to force this or I'm, I'm going to beat myself up over this. So our brains have these natural mechanisms already designed, built right in that, that say, hey, curiosity feels better than force. So, you know, follow, follow that curiosity. It's going to get us to better places than force is. Do you have a personal journey going from more of a hard way of speaking to yourself and self-shame to a more playful loving do you have a personal experience in that in that journey yeah, i would say you know a lot of my life especially through high school college and i would say you know it was it was really built around this you know this willpower myth where you know, i'm just going to force my way in through things so you know i have to say the I remember in medical school when I started meditating myself, you know, I, I brought this willpower type approach to learning to meditate. And the idea was, you know, if you pay attention to your breath and your mind wanders, just bring it back. And the instruction, which I couldn't hear because I wasn't in that mindset, was be playful, be curious, like, oh, my mind's wandered, bring it back. It was like, oh, my mind's wandered, force it to come back and force, force that. And I used to. I'd go on week-long silent meditation retreats and I'd sweat through t-shirts in the middle of winter trying to force myself to pay attention to my breath. On my first week-long retreat, I remember crying uncontrollably on the shoulder of the retreat manager, who I did not know at the time, you know, because I was thinking, well, I can get into medical school, but I can't pay attention to my breath. So that's how much willpower was a failure for me. And I kept beating my head against the wall for cl probably close to 10 years as I was trying to learn to meditate because that's all I knew until I had this big breakthrough where I realized, wow, willpower is just not, <laughs> you know, it's not going to work. And curiosity is the way to go and I have not looked back since. It makes a lot of sense. What I hear from that is kind of dropping an attachment of an expectation of the way, you know, th things should go. I think that's where people get messed up meditations, expecting themselves to be this master at coming back or attaching to it. Like, oh, I can do this and escape these feelings, or I can do this and become a master of, of my mind. And what you're describing is just actually practicing the art of, of continually letting go, just being okay with whatever, whatever is, whatever comes up and, and not forcing any change, just being with with curiosity, whatever exists in, in, in the system. And you touch upon that in, in the book, which I think was a great point, is is kind of being observational versus fixing. Like if you, if you have uh, an anxious moment come up or you're feeling a certain way, rather than going to the brain saying, how can I use uh, XYZ to fix this issue? 
instead going, oh, this thing's coming up. Let me observe the sensation, not attached to it, and just be with it as, as it floats. Yeah, absolutely. I think of this as being rather than doing. You know, in, in the societal habit and the many of our individual habits are just got to do more, do more, do more, do more. Well, really, that's about being more, being with our experience. And, you know, the image comes up, it's like water. You know, we can try to, we can try to force rocks out of the path, or we can be like water and flow around them. You know, which one, which one's more natural, which one takes less energy and which one's going to work, which one's going to be more effective. You know, it's really about being with our experience, noticing when we're trying to force things and letting go and letting, letting things flow. Yeah. The, the core philosophy of the Tao Te Ching is, you know, you know, be while you do. Can you speak to that a little bit? Like, how do you actually, I can, you know, I can sit and be while I watch, you know, crappy reality TV or, or stuff like that. What's tough for, for me or anyone, I think, is having that, that somatic uh, feeling of, of being while in, you know, work situations or, you know, how do you, how do you go about that being while doing? Well, I think with everything we can use this, this internal sense of, contraction versus expansion as a compass. So we could simply sit and watch crappy television and not pay attention to our internal experience and say, well, I'm just being here watching television. No, we're, we're vegging out. So we can check to see whatever we're doing. Does this, in this moment, am I feeling more contracted or am I feeling more expanded? That can be a marker of where we're getting caught up in our experience and we're getting in our own way, that contraction feeling, you know, it's like when we're trying to force things that feels contracted, when we're getting caught up in a craving, it feels contracted. When we're getting caught up in anxiety and worrying, it feels contracted. And then we can compare that to being in the moment, being curious, like, oh, what are the circumstances that are contributing to this contraction? And that, oh, helps us actually start moving in that opposite direction where we're starting to expand in that moment. And then we can ask, oh, is this helping me live my best life? Is this helping, you know, the world be a better place? And if it's not, then that's a moment where we can start to shift and change and ask, oh, well, what would be more helpful? And we can explore that question and kind of live into that question rather than, you know, just convincing ourselves that uh, scrolling on our social media accounts is, you know, is the best way to live our lives. Yeah, it's crazy if you just look around. I, I genuinely believe that we love our anxiety. I don't mean that like literally, but you know, if you look around, everyone's like, like this. We're all addicted to it. We're all like our our egos, our unconscious minds love it. Like we we love that shit uh, anywhere. So it's it's fascinating. How, how do you wrap your head around around that? Like, why do we as human beings love our anxiety so much? Again, not that we like sitting there being like, oh, I love this feeling. It's that we're addicted to it. We all some part of us always wants to be in it, no matter what. Yeah, I would say there are two things there. One is that anxiety becomes a habit. And so the feeling of anxiety triggers us to do some behavior that keeps it around, like worrying. Worrying actually just feeds back and makes us more anxious, even though we feel like, well, at least I'm doing something, I'm worrying. But it it hasn't been shown to actually be helpful for anxiety. It just makes it worse. The other thing that I would say there is that we are, as as beings, uh, we like habits, you know, habits help us survive. So we don't have to kind of relearn everything every day. 
And so when something is habitual, it's comfortable because it's telling our brain, hey, this isn't dangerous, at least not right now. You know, anxiety is not actually very good for our health long term, but our brains are not set up to think far into the future. They're set up for immediate survival. So if it's familiar, if it's comfortable, that signals, well, it, it hasn't killed me yet. <laughs> and so we get stuck in those habit loops, whatever they are simply because they're familiar, they're comfortable in that way. You know, it's our comfort zone, even though anxiety is uncomfortable. There's the irony. Yeah. What I think it, you're describing is, is uh, you know, leaving the comfort zone of anxiety. And what I think is, is dangerous in today's day and age is that when someone's anxious and they go to a psychiatrist, they get labeled as anxiety, you know, generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder. When I talk to some of these people, I was one once one of these people, and they put themselves in this box of, I have anxiety disorder, and then they like justify their constant anxiety by, I'll ask them, hey, what's going on? Why are you feeling this way? It's like, oh, I have anxiety. So they get stuck in this thing that they just they don't move out of it. So I was curious to see, you know, how, how you feel about that, putting people in, in those boxes of like, oh, they're an anxious person. They're always going to feel anxiety and the harm that may do. Mm -hmm. Well, there are two ways that people get put in those boxes. One is societally, you know, get labeled, you know, psychiatrist, psychologist, you know, social worker, whatever says, oh, you're an anxious person. They're actually contributing to the problem because that helps feed an identity that somebody might have. Oh, I'm an anxious person. I even had in our unwinding anxiety app, we put in a specific vignette of somebody who'd been pilot testing our program this years ago. This person uh, wrote me an email before we had finalized our, our core modules and said, I feel like anxiety, I've got anxiety that's deeply etched in my bones. That was so powerful that I actually put it as, as module 29, I think, in our program, because this highlights how strongly we can be identified with anxiety and how strongly we can be, be identified with anything, whether it's I'm a depressed person, you know, uh, addict, you know, all these things where we label ourselves. And the reality is that we're people that get stuck in habit loops. So we can be stuck in a habit of being anxious. We can be stuck in a habit of some type of an addiction. We can even be stuck in the habit of having a, a really, you know, down mood when we're depressed. So, and we're adding that negative thinking on top of it, oh, this is never going to change. All of that, you know, is really, if we look at it and get curious, these are patterns that our minds get stuck in that actually keep us stuck. And so the first thing to recognize is, oh, I'm not my thoughts. I'm not my feelings. I'm not my body sensations. These things come and go, which can be tremendously liberating in itself. And then we can go from there and start to map out these habits and then, you know, start to realize, you know, we are, we are beings that has, have thoughts, have emotions and that we don't have to be identified with them. Yeah. So, so powerful, man. So true. I'm one of those cases where from a young age, I was diagnosed bipolar. I was diagnosed ADHD diagnosed. God knows what all the time. And I put myself in those boxes that when I was down or feeling down, I'd say, I'm depressed, I'm having an episode, and then had this whole thing would manifest. Whereas now I just like, in this moment, I feel a sensation of X. I try to remove the I, but like, I just say the sensation of sadness. I just stay with it and then it, it passes. And then I'm back to back to normal. And just that, that sh I wish people would just start thinking that way of, 
of don't be in this box. You, you can put yourself in, in a moment of feeling something that, that, that then passes. It's such a different way of, of, uh, of going about things. And, and on that, that note, I, I'm trying to bring in uh, the, the topic of, of, of medication because that was also tied to my anxiety. So a couple years ago, I was diagnosed panic disorder. I was given benzos, and they would tell me, hey, take this pill whenever you're anxious. And what ended up happening, of course, was uh, I associated feeling anxious with needing a pill. And then I became resistant to it. I didn't want to feel it. So I was curious to see your perspective on the danger of you know, benzos and prescribing anxiety medications right away. So generally speaking, as a you know as a psychiatrist, I I prescribe medications. I I tend not to prescribe benzodiazepines for anxiety, and they're actually not recommended as first line treatment. Um, back in the day, you know, in the fifties or whatever, you know, every everybody was taking the Rolling Stones. You know, Mother's Little Helper was all about was I think it was Valium with benzos. So you know, they were the rage. And then people started realizing, wow, these are not actually helpful and they can be addictive. So feel anxious, take pill, feel anxious, take pill, rinse and repeat, right? Not a good way to live. Uh, and basically it's about numbing ourselves from, from life. So I, I recommend, you know, and, and for the top line treatments, for example, uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, about one in five people uh, benefits from from taking medication. So for some people, these can be really helpful. You know, about 20% of folks, but we are not great at predicting who those people are going to be. So, you know, if somebody, if somebody comes to me with severe anxiety and they want to try medication, you know, the risk to benefit ratio, I'll I'll determine, you know, figure out whether it's it makes sense and then maybe try medication. Some people can benefit from those types of medications. I would not recommend benzos. But, you know, try other things. And I would say everyone can benefit from understanding how their minds work and working with their minds. So this is where, you know, we developed this Unwinding Anxiety app to help people. You know, anybody with a smartphone can, can use this. And we did a randomized controlled trial where we got a 67% reduction in anxiety. That translated so that, you know, that one in five number is called the number needed to treat. How many people you need to treat before one person benefits? With medications, that's 5.2. That's where that 20% comes in. With the study that we did, that number was 1.6. So, you know, that just highlights how helpful it is for everyone to understand and learn how their minds work so they can learn to work with their minds. Since prescribing those kinds of medications right away without any investigation as to why that's the case, as to investigating how it's a habit or what's causing it is so dangerous. Do you have any ideas of how we can, not we, but how the system can change, how we can, how you can start implementing maybe in a psychiatrist's handbook saying, hey, have you know, try mindfulness. I'm sure you thought about that. What's your opinion on how we can go about creating that change in the system? Because it's so rigid and stuck in this automatic prescription of, of medication. Yeah. yeah. So, there are a number of factors that contribute. And one of them is just habit. You know, people are in the habit of doing things. So we have to be able to step out of our habits. And, and from a medical standpoint, you know, it's it's really about finding evidence-based treatments. So we've done, you know, several studies, for example, with our Unwinding Anxiety app and have found, you know, positive benefits. 
it takes a long time for a system to change when even when there's strong evidence for something that's helpful and has you know generally a low side effect profile so just that inertia i think on average it takes about 17 years for a new treatment to kind of make filter into the mainstream you know reimbursement system so you know just from a a logistics standpoint, it takes a long time for things to change. Now, it doesn't have to be the case where individual doctors and therapists and you know folks that are that are helping folks who are struggling with anxiety can be looking at the evidence themselves. They can be determining, wow, is this worth trying uh, with my patients or my clients? And then trying, you know, doing the experiments themselves, like seeing, you know, is this going to help my patients? So for example, I had a primary care physician, uh, internal medicine doc contact me randomly, who had said, you know, she tried, she'd offered one of her patients, uh, selective serotonin and reuptake inhibitor and our own running anxiety app and followed up with them three weeks later. And he told her, he said, well, I didn't try the medication because I wasn't that excited to you know, go on a medication, but I tried the app and his anxiety had dropped significantly just within three weeks. And so she contacted me because she said, wow, I'm, you know, I'm prescribing this to my patients all the time because it's, you know, it's as cheap as medication and it's uh, it's more effective. So, you know, for for a lot of folks, something like a digital therapeutic may be a way to go. And I would say in general, we're going to see more digital therapeutics come online as the evidence develops. Uh, yet that can take years to do the clinical studies and to do good clinical studies. So you know, we've done three with our unwinding anxiety app and have had very positive results. And, you know, the hope is that people can start to see as that evidence builds, there are other alternatives out there besides medications. Or I would also say in addition to medications, it's not that, you know, we the two can't co coexist. Yeah, that's powerful. I'm very happy to hear you're doing that. Because, you know, I had tough experiences, experiences with it. And it, it has to, uh, it has to change, especially for people who, again, get the get the prescription so fast and they change their neurochemistry so quickly for for uh, no reason really. And we need to start, you know, investigating, you know, habits, how you're eating. And I'm not saying it's to shame anyone or anything who takes medication at all. It's just from the heart and and the place of love, being like, you know, investigate mindfulness food all this stuff uh as you do this stuff because it, it's not as simple as just handing someone something and, and, and calling it a day there's still a lot of stuff that that has to go into it uh, moving on now to, to something else i think one of the main points you made in the book that helps me with, with a lot of stuff is remembering that anxiety is truly useless that we think in the moment like we get stuck to it like i'm gonna this is gonna help me work better you know i'm, I'm feeling more alive Everything's going to work better, but it's it's utterly useless. It, it does nothing. So I'm curious to hear you speak of that, like wh why anxiety is, is, is useless in our uh, way of going about things and how we actually get used to believing that, how we can in integrate that into our belief system that, hey, this isn't going to help me at all. Mm -hmm. The best I can tell is that anxiety is this evolutionary hiccup where there are two helpful survival mechanisms that have kind of gotten mushed together to make something that's unhelpful. And so those two are fear. You know, we learn from fear. You step out in the street because you're 
looking at your phone instead of looking both ways. And then you almost get hit by a car and you learn, oh, that was a bad idea. I should put my phone away when I'm walking down the street. So fear, helpful, very adaptive evolutionary mechanism. Also, we have planning. You know, the more, you know, this is more recent from an evolutionary perspective, planning for the future also helpful for obvious reasons. But when you bring those two together, fear of the future, right? Planning is all about the future. When fear of the future equals anxiety, especially worry, that doesn't help because we're not in immediate danger and we don't have to make immediate assessments based on what's actually happening. We're trying to spin out all these scenarios in our heads and then we get locked into that, oh no, what if this happens as compared to just planning like, oh, this could happen. So I need to be prepared for that. Planning is very, very different than worrying, but that when you bring that fear element in, you know, our brain tends to go offline and get stuck in those, the worst, those worst case scenarios. And that's, that hasn't been shown to be adaptive at all. In fact, anxiety is, is not good for us. Yeah. You often hear the counter argument to that being like, you know, I, I need anxiety to work. I need it to do these things. And I was curious to see how I'm assuming you worked from anxiety for a while in med school, all, all that kind of stuff. What was the process for you shifting away from using that as a fuel to work? Like, what is it now? Is it just pure presence? Like what, how do you take someone who uses anxiety as fuel, loves the coffee, loves the green tea to push themselves through work? How do you, how do you move that to something else to work from a healthier place? And what is that place instead of anxiety? Yeah, well, green tea is very different than anxiety. <laughs> yeah, I mean, more so like the feet, like using the feeling of, of like being turned on and to work all the time. Yeah, so this is what's called uh, the correlation uh, fallacy. And this is perpetuated by the internet, unfortunately, and by people even writing books because they are so bought into the idea that anxiety is helpful. There was, and I wrote about this in, in the Unwinding Anxiety book, there was a study back in 19, I think, 08, where people are studying Japanese dancing mice. And they determined that a certain level of arousal, you know, when they're basically when they're awake, they're going to perform best. Duh. You know, so if you're asleep or you're totally freaked out, you know, that's that you know, when you're totally freaked out, you're going to freeze. And they somebody extrapolated that in the 1950s, suggesting that this is what anxiety does. And then the internet ran with it in the year 2000. Like nobody had cited this stuff. Uh, and then suddenly it exploded when the internet exploded because everybody's thinking, oh, you know, this inverted U-shaped curve of anxiety, a little bit of anxiety is helpful. When you actually look at the research, it is not an inverted U-shaped curve. It is an inverse correlation. The more anxious somebody is, the worse they do. So the first thing we have to do is realize that correlation, if we're anxious and we get something done, doesn't mean that anxiety made that thing get done. That's the correlation does not equal causation. It didn't cause us to get something done. And then we can start looking, we're anxious all the time, then we're going to make that correlation all the time because we're thinking, oh, you know, anxiety is what helped me get stuff done. Then we can look at the opposite. So the opposite of anxiety is flow. When we are in, so in the moment that we're not even there, you know, the definition of, of flow, uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi put it to, you described it as this, this effortless, selfless state and tremendously joyful. People describe flow as peak experience. And that's when we are just doing our best. So we can look at the opposite of anxiety and say, how does that work? Well, <laughs> anxiety is not actually helping us. 
So then we can start to ask these questions like, is anxiety actually helping me? Or is this just my brain correlating anxiety with getting things done? So we can explore, well, what's it like when I'm not anxious? Do I, am I more productive? You know, am I getting things done? And that's where we can help our brain see, oh, this is just a correlation. My brain, you know, mistakenly put these two together. I don't need to be anxious to get things done. In fact, I can be more productive in a happier way and better better for me better for others around me you know anxiety is contagious nobody likes to be around people that are anxious and we can really just you know step out of that process by seeing that that's just our brain you know our brains love to make correlations and we just need to help our brains you know bust that myth yeah that perfectly perfectly said and also what i think about is if you're working in a state of anxiety or fear and you're consuming information and reading your book, let's go into this now, of how like your prefrontal cortex will have problems coming online if you're anxious or in a state of fear. I'm always curious, if you're, if you're learning stuff and you want to be able to think for yourself a little bit and say, hmm, maybe I should investigate this or that, that when you're in that state of fear or anxiety, you kind of just like download stuff. You don't really think about it. You're in this like autopilot uh, hypnosis in a way where you just believe whatever you're told. I'm curious about if you... Thought about or studied how fear affects our consumption of information. I haven't studied that. You know, my my lab hasn't studied that itself. I imagine you know if you think of the the far end of the spectrum of anxiety, panic. You know, the the definition is something like you know this feeling of anxiety that's so extreme that it leads to wildly unthinking behavior. So this is where herd mentality comes in. So I would say with extreme fear, you know, if you look at that far end of the spectrum, we are not thinking at all. You know, our prefrontal cortex is offline and we're just following what everybody else is doing, which can be a really dangerous thing for, for everyone involved. Yep. You see, I mean, you see it now in today's day and age and this uh, herd mentality thinking where just uh, you have someone set a state of panic and everyone through something, and then they all believe whatever they're told to make that fear go away. And I think going off of that, what's important for people in my eyes, and if you, you agree, is tolerating whatever, tolerating the fear, tolerating not knowing something, and being okay in that space, being perfectly fine managing their, their ability to not know something, to be in a state of fear. I think it's a powerful way to go about your life. Yes, I would say a lot of folks they live in two zones, the comfort zone where things are you know safe and comfortable and they're just doing their thing, which is also group think as well. You know, it's like, oh, if, if, you know, people share the same beliefs, et cetera, this is where social media fell into this rabbit hole of realizing that, you know, if they kind of radicalize people to whatever topic, it doesn't even matter, but they're finding more, you know, giving people content that is, that feels familiar and more and more familiar uh, they they get more clicks. They get them to stay on their social media sites more. You know, so this is um, that that comfort zone is where we often live. And if we're not even aware that that can happen, we get sucked into those things where you know we're it's our in group mentality. So there's that comfort zone, and then there's the panic zone. So when somebody says run, especially if it's on our in group, everybody runs. So neither of those are particularly aware states because we're kind of in our habit of being comfortable and then in our in our you know panic zone of just running. 
So the idea is, can we actually bring curiosity in first to understand these and learn, oh, I'm here or here, and then find that there's actually a zone in the middle called the growth zone. So instead of going, oh no, this is different, different than what I know, and we don't go there because it's not comfortable, or we are in the freak out, oh no, this is terrible, we can go, oh, and we get curious. That opens us to explore what's actually happening right now instead of you know doing that wildly unthinking behavior and panic or the wildly, uh, let's say, stuckness of being in our comfort zone. And then we can start to learn, oh, growth zone, it's called the growth zone for a reason, is where I learn and grow. And this is, it actually feels pretty good when we can learn to be comfortable with discomfort because that discomfort is just saying, hey, this is different. Certainly need to check to make sure that it's safe because that's our survival brain saying, hey, this is different. You make sure it's safe. And when we realize that, oh, this is I'm, this is just different, we can lean into that different and see, wow, actually grow more. This actually feels okay that's, that something is different instead of being locked, locked in either, either of these, these other, other extremes. extremes. Yeah, it's a very powerful way of, of thinking, of always re relating things back to growth. But on that note, if anyone moves from their comfort zone to growth, there's a mass period of resistance. We hear, for example, I love the ice bath in the morning because I do it every morning. I've done it for, I think, half a year now. And every morning I'm doing it, my brain's like, don't do it today. You know, you did it yesterday. Take a hot shower. You deserve it. That no matter what, my comfort zone will start yapping at me, no matter what. And then the feelings of that comfort zone will come up. So it's, what do you recommend to people in that moment of, of in that transition where their, their body and their thoughts are doing everything they possibly can to pull you away from that growth zone. So it's how it worked for me. And, and I think many people where the more you get close to that zone of, of growth, the more the comfort zone will scream at you, come back, come back, come back, come back. So how do you get, recommend for people to, to keep pushing forward, keep trucking and not listen to that voice? So the first thing to do is to just recognize resistance. What does resistance feel like? And what do we get from resistance, we can ask ourselves, well, when I resist something, what do I get from this? And then we can remember, well, what was it last time? What was the last time like when I did, when I was in my growth zone and really feel into that experience? Being in our growth zone can feel pretty good. And then we can ask ourselves, which do I prefer? You know, let our brains decide for us. Yeah. Yeah. I think, again, you're, you're, Whenever I, I hear it in your voice, it's always this self-kindness, this, uh, this self-compassion. And a point you make in the book is that kindness actually helps anxiety. But when you're anxious, the last thing you want to do is be kind. You kind of want to be this, you want to make people feel the way you feel. That's, the, I think, the golden rule of life. That if you're anxious and stressed out, you want to, like, uh, project that stress and anxiety to other people. So I'm curious to see, you know, how kindness itself as being a kind person and being kind to people, not just yourself, but being kind to others can actually help your anxiety in the long run. Well, this is something we can all explore ourselves. You know, we can, we can do that experiment. We can compare kindness to spreading kindness, to spreading anxiety and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I asked my followers uh, just how they felt about their anxiety, what was going on. And the number one thing I got back was racing thoughts at night. Almost every single time it was someone saying racing thoughts at night. So two things. Why is that so common? Why when we're in our state of just going to sleep, why does all this stuff start coming up? And how can we move past that habit? Because it is really destructive because it destroys our sleep, which then causes more anxiety the next day. 
Yeah, I. so one speculation is that when we distract ourselves or keep ourselves busy during the day, when we're going to sleep, our brains say, my turn, you know, and they say, okay, you know, you're not doing anything right now. You're supposed to be going to sleep. So I'm going to start thinking about all the things I need to do tomorrow. And then we start worrying. Oh, no, I can't get to sleep because worry and anxiety are actually arousing. It makes it harder to get to sleep. So then we look at the clock or our phone or whatever and, and realize, oh, man, it's been an hour in my mind. I'm not anywhere near sleep. And so we get more worried, more anxious, and it just spirals out of control. I see this all the time in my clinic as well. So here we can start to learn, you know, okay, here's my brain getting stuck in this anxiety and worry habit loop. And there are ways to step out of it. So, for example, we even did a clinical trial with sleep where we found that you know, just helping people map out and work with their anxiety habit loops using our own running anxiety app, I reduced anxiety and helped people, you know, get better quality sleep. Awesome. Uh, do you recommend any in that? Let's say, let's say you're in that state of high arousal, your thoughts are moving. You, know, you, you recommend meditation as, as a way to pull yourself out of it. Is there any specific uh, technique or, or breathing exercise that you would recommend for people to return to a state of, you know, uh, intellectual homeostasis where they feel safe and secure? Is there a, a like the quick hack to to return to to feeling good in, in some kind of breathing state? Yeah, the one that I've found most effective over the years, and they're you know really folks have to try out what works best for them. Uh, it's called the body scan. I even have a put a YouTube video up on my YouTube channel just to help people guide people through it. But I would say, I would that's where I tend to recommend people to start, regardless of how much they've meditated in the past or not. It's a pretty straightforward process. How long would you think it get? It takes the average person to be able to be skilled at pulling themselves out of anxiety through breathing. Because uh, I think what stops people is this expectation of, I should be doing it immediately. This should be happening now. I can't get out of it. How long? I mean, it's not one size fits all, but it must take a while to get to a place where you can truly, you know, bring yourself back to normal through breathing. Yeah, and I wouldn't, so I, I can't answer just specifically through breathing itself because that's a, pretty you know that's yeah, i mean i mean more so like the the in that moment of like <clears throat> like how long someone can can through time come back to a state of uh so there you know there, there's a a tool that we have in our unrunning anxiety app called five finger breathing and i'll also have a, a youtube uh video that explains it and the neuroscience behind it which is basically within five breaths someone can really ground themselves uh, using using a practice like five finger breathing. That one in particular uh, brings in multimodal, multi-senses as a way to really help that that rapid grounding and helping, helping our, basically helping our working memory part of our brain kind of reboot. So it can happen, you know, within five breaths. Wow, that's quick. Uh, one One last topic before we wrap up I wanted to bring up is I think in this process of helping our anxiety, of healing from our anxiety, in today's day and age, we get very good at, if you go to therapy or any of that kind of stuff, you go back to the patterns, right? Like, 
this happened to me as a kid and, you know, the trauma, da, 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 which is useful, I think, to, to get to know yourself. But at what point does it become detrimental to just whenever you're feeling that way to go back to the trauma, go back to the point of origin versus just seeing it as a habit and starting to disenchant yourself? Well, I would say, you know, for folks that have a trauma history, it's, it's really, you know, important to honor that and to, you know, get support around that. So generally speaking, if you look at the behavior change formulas for, you know, in neuroscience, uh, history is, is important in terms of setting up uh, the reward value of a certain behavior. And then it's really about that reward value and in the moment. So the history is not as important when a habit has been established. So for example, there was somebody uh, in our unwanted anxiety program who talked about he had some childhood trauma. This is a guy probably in his 60s now, maybe even older. And he would worry as a way to make him feel in control because as a kid, you know, he had no control over that over a situation. And he carried that worry forward for decades and decades and decades. And that was his coping mechanism that he finally mapped out and realized, oh, this isn't actually helping me now in my 60s or 70s. And he had to honor, he described it as honoring that, you know, childhood coping mechanism and not just saying, oh, you know, that was, that was dumb. Uh, but that was really, you know, this is, this is all I had. This is what I've carried forward. And now I can let it go. So it's really, you know, about honoring whatever was helpful for us and then seeing if that shoe still fits and really paying attention. And for him, that shoe didn't fit anymore, which then opens up the door to move to things that are helpful in this moment. And so that's really about have a change in the moment. You're speaking to something definitely on the collective mind, which I see is we're, get, we're falling in love with the awareness, which is good, right? We love, everyone's taking psychedelics, everyone's taking the mushrooms, all that kind of stuff that brings up awareness of what exists, but then actually creating change and moving in towards the position where you can change your, your mind and body is where people get get stuck on it. Is, do you ever see that where people finally become aware and they're like, whoa, I finally know all this stuff, but then they get stuck in actually creating change? Yes, yeah, so it's, both are important to know that change is possible and what it feels like to expand. You know, that's why shrooms are described as mind expanding drugs, right? Because it, it helps us see, oh, this is possible where we might not have known that it's possible. Yet we've got to train our minds to be able to move in that direction. So it's not just seeing, okay, and then not knowing how to work with that, but it's really about seeing what's possible and then knowing that we can actually train ourselves to move in that direction. So that you know, that's where the compass of contraction versus expansion can be really, really helpful. Yeah, where, where I use the historical reflection of what happened for me is that I allow it to trigger kindness. That when I think about, well, I don't focus on it is I think about, oh, this is stemming from me as a kid when I didn't get X, Y, Z and feeling that younger self and have my heart expand and, and being kind to that kid. For me, I quickly use it as a vehicle to open my heart, to open kindness to then go, okay, let's take care of this, let's do this. And that like opening, rather than as you say, like shame, oh, why'd I do that, why'd I do this, that you contract, versus using that to be like, okay, it's okay, I forgive myself, I love my younger self, it's okay. Now let me actually change this and, and create change from that that one uh, one time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, uh, we'll wrap up here. Th thank you so much for, for coming on. I, I learned a lot and I hope people who are 
watching le learned a lot if you want to shout out any of your uh, pages or people can find you please uh please do so the easiest way to find me is my dr judd website drjud.com i also have a the Dr. Judd YouTube channel, I mentioned several, you know, meditations and practices that folks can check out there as well. Okay. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking. Thanks for having me. No worries. Thank you. Have a good one.